Lord Jesus, you are the rightful and true king of the world. And Lord, we long for your return, for your setting of all things right, for the restoration of all things in creation, for justice to reign, and for your beauty and your majesty to shine, and for us to stand before you in adoring worship. Lord, um, we are weak creatures, but we thank you that you've rescued us and ransomed us so that we are citizens of your kingdom. We long for that future. Um, give us greater longing and help us to live in light of what you are doing in the world. Lord, we pray these things. We ask them. Bless this morning as we now come to your word. Help us to hear, but not merely hear, to understand the scriptures. Give us your enablement, Holy Spirit. Give me clarity and give us ears to hear, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 13, and we are going to read the last section on the teaching of the parables. Lord willing, we will finish the parables today. Spent the last few weeks on them. So we've got Matthew 13, Matthew 13, and we're going to read from 44 to 53, and when you found your place there, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We stand because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks, and we show our honor of God's Word um, through standing as we read it together. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. You may be seated. Let's remember and review where we've been. Um, uh, Matthew has five main discourses where Jesus is teaching his disciples about uh, the kingdom in some fashion. Uh, we can remember Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He was teaching about kingdom righteousness. What does it look like to live as a citizen of God's kingdom? And then you can think of uh, the second discourse where he sent his disciples out to proclaim the message that he himself and that John the Baptist was proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. How had it drawn near? Did it draw near in the person of Jesus, the king, and through the demonstration of his kingship and through giving foretastes of the kingdom through his miracles, through uh, his healings, through those sorts of things. So, so through his teaching and through his, his uh, miracles that he had done. And then what we saw at the end of by the end of chapter 12 is that, uh, by and large, the people of Israel have not repented, uh, whether you're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees who had uh, opposition to Jesus or the, the crowds who were mainly ambivalent, still kind of interested, but ambivalent. By and large, the nation of Israel had not repented. And so the, really, the, that generation of Israel and 
rejected Jesus, and Jesus in turn rejected them. Uh, The kingdom was not to come because that nation was not repentant. And so in light of that, we have Matthew 13, where Jesus really teaches a lot about the kingdom of the heavens. And that idea of the kingdom of the heavens, as we saw from Daniel 2, it's the idea of the kingdom coming from the heavens to earth. That's the idea of the kingdom from the heavens. God has always planned and prepared a kingdom from the beginning, authorized by him through a human chosen king to be over all the world for God's glory. And Daniel 2 showed that there's all these empires, there's all these different kingdoms of the world, but the ultimate kingdom will come from heaven and will encompass the whole earth, destroying all those perverted and distorted versions of an earthly kingdom And then it will ultimately be led by the Davidic king, the ultimate Davidic king, the son of David, the Messiah. But what has happened in Matthew 13 is because the Messiah has been rejected, now Jesus is going to give some new information. He's going to give secrets of the kingdom coming from the heavens of what is that going to look like? What is that going to look like now that Jesus has been rejected by this generation of Israel? What is the kingdom coming from the heavens going to look like? What's that process going to look like? And that's what all the parables have been about. Jesus has been giving them to the crowds and the disciples thus far, because what is a parable? A parable is a comparison between uh, everyday realities, uh, familiar realities in life, and profound theological truth. And so if he presents them to the crowd, he gives them the, the everyday truth, uh, but he doesn't give them the explanation of that truth. And so it's like a one-way mirror. Until the crowds, until an individual from the crowds repents and joins the disciples on the other side of the one-way mirror, they can't grasp in fullness the significance of what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. The reason for that is because of the rejection, the clarity of revelation is now being withdrawn in a way of judgment. So thus far, Jesus has presented parables to the crowds, And then he's given explanation to the disciples. He's given explanation to the disciples. So we had the parable of the sower. Uh, Why is Jesus' message of the kingdom not being accepted? It's because of people's heart conditions. Either they don't understand, they're like a a hard path in terms of soil, or they understand a little bit, but uh, uh, when persecution comes, they flee. Or uh, the cares of this world distract them, and there's only really one good soil that represents the disciples, a small portion of uh, those who respond, or at least seemingly respond, to the message, the gospel of the kingdom. Then we had the parable of last week, we talked about the parable, in the last couple weeks, we talked about the parable of the Darnell, the weeds in the field, the look-alike weeds, that there's mixture uh, at this time in the coming of the kingdom. There's going to be mixture between the true disciples, the true citizens of the kingdom, and uh, other, uh, everyone else in the world. They could be lookalikes. They could look like they're responding to the message of the kingdom, but they're living side by side, even as sons of the evil one, right beside the citizens of the kingdom. There's mixture. And then the parable of the mustard seed. There's uh, Jesus' kingdom disciples. They look small. They look insignificant. And yet from the, um, that little group and from the teaching of Jesus, there's going to be gathered more disciples to the point where it's going to grow and it's going to become like this great tree where even nations of the world are going to come to this message and to this group until the end. And then the parable of the leaven, where 
Jesus and his disciples, they're likened to a little bit of sourdough that's put into a big old batch of dough representing the world. And the disciples' message, as they proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and as people repent, that whole batch of dough, that whole world is going to be leavened. And so that's where we've been so far. And all of those have been given both to the crowds and the disciples. For the crowds, they might listen enough and inquire enough so that one individual might come and repent from the crowds into the group of disciples. Uh, but by and large, the crowds are not responding. But the disciples get the information about what the kingdom's going to be like in the coming, coming time. Until we get to this batch that we're looking at this morning... And these are parables only for the disciples. Uh, look at, and back in verse 36, it was very clear that Jesus left the crowds, came back into his house, came back into the uh, base of operations for the disciples, likely in Capernaum. So he's left the crowds now, and he's teaching his disciples. He's already explained the parable of the, the weeds in the field, the darnel, the lookalike weed in the field. And now he's going to add on some more. He's going to add on some more teaching, but only for the disciples. Remember this whole chapter, and really one of the main applications of Matthew as a whole, is to understand the nature of the coming kingdom. And you might ask yourself, well, why do we care? Why does Jesus care if we understand the nature of the kingdom? Isn't that just some sort of theological thing that's out in the corner and people debate about, and it's not really that important? Well, think about it this way. The story of the kingdom and why it's so important and why it's so important that we get these parables is that the story of the kingdom is the story of reality. Like we've said, from Genesis to Revelation, the story has always been about God's kingdom through his chosen king. It's always been about, what do you have to have to have a kingdom? You have to have a ruler, a ruled, or citizens of the kingdom, a realm, and a reign. And that was the design from the beginning. God, the Father, was, supposed to, uh, was going to reign through his chosen king, Adam, over the whole world. The whole world was the realm, and then there was supposed to be this reign through Adam and through his progeny over the whole world, but that was distorted by sin. And then God has moved to restore that reality, to have the right ruler, over the right kingdom citizens in the, the realm of the world and to take up that reign for good. This is the story of reality. This is the movement where God is going in history. And so when we understand that, when we understand that reality, that reality, that epic story, it's not just a story in the sense that, oh, that's nice, but it's epic and it's real, then we live in light of that reality. So that's why Jesus cares that we understand the nature of the kingdom, the nature of its coming, so that we live in light of that reality. It's that reality, the reality of the kingdom, the reality of the coming of the kingdom is what draws disciples to faith and keeps them in faith. It's what draws disciples to faith and keeps them in faith. Our society, our culture loves epic stories. There's no doubt about that. We love a good story. We love the epicness of it. Well, there is nothing more epic than this story of the kingdom, then it's reality, and Jesus, through the parables, is adding to that reality. So let's see what he adds today for the disciples. And the main idea in our section this morning is this, understand the purchase, exposure, and possession of the kingdom 
and teach new and old truths of the kingdom to others. That's what's there in the text we read this morning. That's what we're going to see. You need to understand the purchase, exposure, and possession of the kingdom and teach new and old truths of the kingdom to others. So first, what we're going to see this morning is what we need to take away is this. We need to understand, even as disciples do, they need to understand the purchase of the kingdom. Understand the purchase of the kingdom. Now, I use that word understand intentionally because you remember earlier on in Matthew 13, Jesus said, uh, the crowds only get to hear. They don't understand. But to the, disciple it is, to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, and they get to understand. And so that's, where we're, uh, that's why we use that language intentionally. We need to understand the first thing this morning, the purchase of the kingdom. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of the heavens, so again, that's the language of the kingdom coming down from the heavens that's ultimately going to engulf the whole world through the chosen king, through Jesus as the son of man, ultimately. The kingdom of the heavens is like treasure, treasure. Now, what we've said before in the parables is there's a starting comparison. That's what a parable is. It's a comparison And uh, what is not happening here is the kingdom of heaven is not being equated with treasure. It is, uh, the the comparison is between the kingdom and the whole situation which Jesus describes in the parable. So just remember that, that Jesus isn't saying the kingdom is treasure or is like treasure. He's saying it's like this whole situation which I'm about to lay out for you. But it's like treasure, hidden in the field. Now, your translation might have a little article, A, uh, and before the field, but actually in the original, there's a the. There's a definite article. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, what Jesus is doing in his comparison is he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a particular field which you guys should know about. And you're like, well, what field? Well, let's think about the parables that we've been going through. Remember we said that the parables aren't isolated from each other? At least in Matthew 13, they inform one another. So have we seen anything about a field in the earlier parables? Well, yeah, actually quite a bit. Parable of the sower, parable of the darnel in the field, uh, parable of the mustard seed even, the field gets mentioned. And you remember Jesus last week interpreted in those parables what the field represented. It represented the world. It represented the world. So even here, Jesus is giving us a link back to start to understand what this parable that he's telling his disciples is about. So we know already, we already have a leg up, that the field that Jesus is talking about here represents the world. But even more than that, it's, it's this idea of treasure being hidden in a field. Treasure being hidden in the field. Now, have we talked about in earlier parables anything about that sounds like being hidden or concealed in a field? Well, yeah, we have. Uh, Even think back to the parable of the tares where the sower goes out or the master of the house goes out and he sows good seed in his field. Uh, And then there are the parables right after that, the parable of the mustard seed. You take this little tiny seed and you throw it in the ground and it's hidden. You can't see it in the field. Or even more recently with the parable of the leaven where the gal takes, the woman takes the Uh, the leaven that represents the disciples, and hides it. That's the language. She conceals it in the batch of leaven. So already, because of the language that Jesus is using, we 
already know a lot about this parable. We're talking about treasure hidden in a field. Therefore, uh, because every th- time that we talk about something being hidden in the field, it represents the disciples, we should understand the treasure here as representing the disciples. Everything else in the parables being hidden in the field or being placed in the field has been a representative of the disciples. So what we're talking about here is the group of disciples, the kingdom citizens, being hidden in a field. Now let's see the rest. Which a man found and covered up, and in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the parable. So let's understand the imagery a little bit more. You might be scratching your head a little bit, and it's like, why would someone hide treasure in a field? Well, what you have to understand is at that time in the first century, there's, there's not like good banks or a good banking system. So you can't just deposit your treasure in U.S. Bank. You can't do that. First National Bank of Israel, you can't do that. You actually go and hide it in a field. This was actually quite common, that you would bury your treasure, your assets, in a field. In fact, uh, later in the parable of the talents, you see one guy doing that. But in any case, um, that's why this would happen. You would have treasure in the field. Now, this guy, we don't know, is he looking for the treasure? Does he just stumble across it? We don't know. All we know is he finds it. He stumbles across it. He finds it. He finds this treasure hidden in the field. And then what does he do? Now, this is kind of odd. If you found treasure in a field, what would you do? you would start hauling it out, wouldn't you? And say, all right, let me put it in my wagon and let's go away. I found my treasure in the field and I'm getting out of here. What does this guy do? He hides it again. He hides it again, which is kind of weird. And then what does he do? Then in his joy, why is he joyful? He found treasure and he's looking forward to possessing this treasure. He goes, he departs is the idea. He, he de- goes away, he departs and sells all that he had. It's really emphatic in the original. It's like all things as much as he has. We're talking total liquidation of assets to be able to do what? He sells them, and then he, he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, why does he buy the field? He buys the field because of the treasure, doesn't he? He buys the field because of the treasure. He's looking forward to possessing that treasure, He's giving all as much as he has to purchase, to purchase that. Well, now we've got it. We've interpreted some of the imagery of the parable. What we got to understand? What's the rest of it? We what do we need to understand? We need to understand who the man is. Now, in every other parable thus far, a human character has always been a supernatural figure. Uh, it's either been the Son of Man, namely Jesus, uh, or it's been an angel or it's been Satan. Those are your three options. Every other parable thus far in Matthew 13, it's a supernatural figure. And uh, from what we've seen thus far in the parables, the person who's doing uh, some business in the field and represents a man who's doing something in the field, it's always been the son of man. So we should take and understand, given the context, that the man in this parable is Jesus. Now, you might be taken aback by that for a second, because normally this parable is interpreted as like the man in the field is like a disciple, and he like finds the kingdom, and then out of his joy, he goes and buys it. But if we interpret this parable in context, it's more likely that Jesus is saying, 
giving us another picture of his relationship to the kingdom. A man found this treasure and covered it up. The imagery is even more reinforced in the representation of the disciples and of uh, God's people being treasured. That is a well-established pattern in the Old Testament. If you were to go back to, say, Exodus 19.5 or Deuteronomy 7.6 or Deuteronomy 14.2 or Deuteronomy 26.18 or Malachi 3.17 or Psalm 135.4, you would hear that God describes his people, the people whom he's redeemed. Uh, so if you think about Exodus, the people whom he's redeemed from slavery, Israel whom he's redeemed from slavery, he describes them as his treasured possession. And it even gets a little bit more specific, say, later in the Old Testament in Malachi 3.17, you can look that up later if you want, where the treasured possession is not just Israel as a whole, because not everyone in Israel actually knew God. They were part of that nation, but they didn't actually know God in a saving way. And in Malachi 3.17, it's the picture of the people who are actually know God within Israel, or the righteous remnant who actually knows God within Israel. That, that group has existed for a long time. That's why it's this, this treasure in this parable is described, it's already been hidden. The idea in Exodus 19.5, that language there, God describes uh, Israel as his treasured possession among all the peoples of the world, just like a treasure having been hidden in a field. So what does the rest of the parable represent? Well, if Jesus is the man, he stumbles across it, he finds it, well, that would correspond to Jesus coming and doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What has Jesus done? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's close. The kingdom's close by. It's like he uncovered the treasure, didn't he? He presented what the kingdom is going to be like in his miracles and in his teaching. But now, because we know the rejection that's happened in Matthew 12... Jesus is saying to his disciples, what's going to happen from now on out is actually the treasure is going to be covered up, and then this man is going to enjoy, depart, and sell all that he has and buys that field. What's it talking about? It's talking about the atonement. Because in Matthew one twenty one, and and there's already been this this underlying um, uh, this underlying plot or subplot in the book of Matthew. Matthew one twenty one says, "You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." You see, there's a dilemma. There's always been a dilemma, but um, in the kingdom citizens, because we said and we can see in the parables that every single person, without exception, deserves. Not to be a kingdom citizen, but starts out as a citizen of Satan's counterfeit kingdom and deserves God's wrath. So the question is, if that's everyone's state, everyone deserves God's wrath because sin is not just doing a naughty thing. Sin is a personal offense to the infinitely holy God of the universe that deserves our worship as his, as his creatures. If everyone starts out as a citizen of Satan's kingdom, then how do you even have kingdom citizens, period. It's a dilemma in the history of redemption. But even what Matthew and Jesus has alluded to in the book of Matthew is that uh, he alludes back to Isaiah and talking about the suffering servant who will 
uh, who will redeem, who will pay for the sins of his people so that they can be considered right in God's eyes, so that they can be considered citizens of that kingdom. And already in Matthew, Jesus has been identified with that Isaiah servant, that servant from Isaiah 53, purchasing his people, which is exactly what's going on right here. Jesus is saying, well, the progress of the kingdom, the kingdom program is going to look like this from here on out. It's going to look like covering up the treasure, or at least it seems that way, and then out of joy, this man who's representing Jesus is going to go and sell all that he has and buys that field, buys the world. Uh, There's a sense in which Jesus' atonement on the cross purchases not only people, but also purchases a reconciliation of all creation to God. The, the, The effects of sin have not only affected people, but the created order, and Jesus' purchase on the cross uh, restores that. But notice the focal point here. The joy of the man who goes and does this, and also the price that is paid. And that might be a little funny to you to hear, that that idea of like, in what sense did Jesus give all that he has to purchase this people? Well, if we think about the cross and we think about redemption, what did it cost God to purchase kingdom citizens for himself? It took first the eternal son adding a human nature to his divine nature. That's where Matthew starts with Mary conceiving by the power of the Holy Spirit so that here's a human being who is sinless. And then for that man to be ridiculed by his own generation and to eventually be crucified on the cross as a representative for his people, his kingdom citizens, bearing their sin, bearing their guilt in himself on the cross and living the righteous life that they could not live to purchase them. You can think about it like this. Jesus could have paid no higher price. It's not like you can't press the imagery of the parable too far. What's the idea of the man going and giving all that he has? It's like he could have paid no higher price for the treasure that he knows in the field. And that is exactly what Jesus did for his people. That is exactly what Jesus did for his people. Now, you might say, well, it's a little weird to talk about um, his people being a treasure because we know that no one has any inherent worth in God's eyes. Everyone is condemned in God's eyes. Yes, there's inherent worth as image bearers of God as part of his creation, but in the eyes of a holy God, it, uh, everyone, he says in um, Psalms that everyone has become worthless. But Jesus and the rest of the Bible and the, uh, it talks about God and it talks about God redeeming his people, it's not because his people are inherently valuable, but it's because the price he sets on them through, the price he pays for them through their redemption. Or another way to think about it, it's because of God's sheer grace and love and mercy that he accords value, that he accounts value to his people and pays the price to redeem them. They have value because he has chosen out of sovereign grace to save his people. And so Jesus, because he knows that of the, 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 the citizens that he has chosen before the foundation of the world, that he has chosen to love them and to redeem them, 
he out of joy goes and purchases them with all that he has, as much as he could possibly give. He gave no higher price. He could give no higher price to purchase his people. And we see that also reinforced by the next parable. Look at verse 45. Same basic theme. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So obviously this one's similar to the last one, but there's some differences, aren't there? This time we've got a merchant who's a merchant. Well, he buys and sells goods. What kind of goods is he selling? He's looking for pearls. Now, you might not think that that's such a big deal, but you have to understand they didn't have like cultured pearls or synthetic pearls like we do. So, you, you know, you can get pearls, um, some nice pearls for not that expensive in our day and age. They didn't have that then. You just had to have the real, the real thing, right, where the oyster has sat there in the, the, the sea or the ocean or whatever and has, you know, coated the little grain or whatever to make this pearl. So pearls were very rare and extremely valuable, extremely valuable. Uh, in fact, a lot of the people that could purchase them were either really rich uh, or were rulers of some sort. So we're talking about this guy is a merchant in luxury goods. This guy is a merchant in luxury goods. Maybe he's shopping to be able to sell to some rulers, some kings. We don't know. But he knows his goods. He knows his luxury goods. And, uh, but this is a little bit different than the, the, than the guy in the field because the guy in the field just stumbled across the treasure but this guy is actually actively looking and searching. And what does he do? He finds one pearl of great value. So this is a high-value pearl. And in fact, we see how valuable it is because, or how highly priced it is. This treasure isn't hidden. It's not hidden, is it? It's right there out in the open. It's being sold in the market somewhere. So it's out in the open. It is out of reach financially, or at least for him initially, because he goes and does what? The exact same sequence. The same sequence happens in both parables, and the sequence is what is important in both parables. He does what? He finds, he departs, he sells all of his assets, he liquidates everything, and then he buys. And that's what Jesus is. He's cluing his disciples in. That's what the development of the kingdom is going to look like. I'm going to go, I'm going to depart. I'm going to purchase my people. And then what? Well, in both stories, we know that, and that might take some time. You know, liquidating your assets takes some time. It's not like it just happens instantly. It's not like you're just going to the bank. If you have your hard assets and you need to liquidate them, it takes some time. But in both stories, the implied ending is what? That the merchant and the guy who found the treasure is going to come back and take possession. He paid all of all of this price to purchase, to purchase this object of great worth. Now, do the disciples get all of what Jesus is saying here? No, we can see later that they don't fully grasp, and they won't fully grasp until after the resurrection, what this is entailed. But Jesus is setting them up. He's setting them up to say, this is, I'm, I'm giving you an indication of what the progress of the kingdom is going to be like. And he's emphasizing its price. In this case, what's the price of the citizens of the kingdom? God's people, his kingdom citizens, are precious in his eyes. Not because of who they are in and of themselves, 
but because God has chosen to set his love on them. See what Jesus has done to save his people from their sins, to die as a criminal, rejected as the Son of God on the cross, the rightful king. He could have given nothing greater than what he gave to purchase his people. You've got to understand, Christ values and loves his people. He treasures his people. And you might say, well, that's great. I know Jesus loves me. I know I'm a treasured individual. Well, that is definitely true, because even Paul says in Galatians, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So Jesus gave himself for individuals, but this isn't just giving himself for individuals. This is Jesus giving himself for a corporate entity, for giving himself for his people, for the citizens that will populate his kingdom from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation in the kingdom in the future. And he loves them. And he delights in them, not because they have intrinsic worth, because we are intrinsically worthless because of our sin in God's eyes, but because he chose to set his love on them and to redeem them for himself. You need to be astounded by that. This is, this is the gospel. This is what we understand, what Jesus has done. And it is incredible and it is amazing what he has done to purchase the citizens of his kingdom. Now, here's a question for you. What if you don't know if you're one of his people? You know, you hear this language and you hear, oh, God, uh, Christ loves his people. He gave himself for his people. And we're like, well, am I among that number? Am I one of his people that he chose before the foundation of the world? Well, it's interesting as Jesus has already addressed that. Remember Jesus' call in Matthew 11, 28, right after he says, well, we just read a little bit more, uh, Remember Matthew eleven twenty five. he says this, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understand them and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, God's doing all of this behind the scenes. He's the one choosing. He's the one redeeming. And yet, what is Jesus' call to the people? Jesus' call is always this. Come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, my, uh, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's Jesus' call. So you might be there saying, well, am I part of his people or not? What is Jesus' call to you? His call is come. Come to me. Come to the one who would give everything, as much as he could give, to purchase his people. That is the character of the Jesus we serve. Don't fixate on, well, am I part of his chosen people from before the foundation of the world or not? Fixate on Jesus, the one who saves and purchases his people, because that is Jesus' call to you. And the encouragement here for the disciples who have already repented, remember what repentance is, turning your allegiance from sin and self. We all live for ourselves. We all want to be our own kings naturally. Repentance is laying down arms, swearing allegiance to Jesus, and trusting yourself to him and the price he paid, and following him in obedience and a righteous living. That is what it means. If you're already a disciple, the encouragement here is he values his people, and he will come again and reclaim his treasured people in the final kingdom. And that is good news, and that would be encouragement to Jesus' disciples 
and then to the audience of disciples that Matthew himself is writing to. So that's the first thing we need to understand about the kingdom this morning. Understand the purchase of the kingdom. Understand the purchase of the kingdom. Second, we need to see this. You need to understand the exposure and possession of the kingdom. Understand the exposure and possession of the kingdom. Look at verse 47. So Jesus keeps rolling on with giving his parables. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. So this time the comparison starts with a net uh, or a drag net. You, know, you might have heard that term or your translation might have it in there. What kind of net are we talking about? There's different types of fishing on the Sea of Galilee at this time. This one is a drag net, and I've got a description here that might help you. It was shaped like a long 750 to 1,000 foot wall. So we're talking like ropes making up this net and forms a big old wall, 750 to 1,000 feet, upwards of 25 feet high at the center and five feet high at the ends. The foot rope or the bottom rope of this net was weighted with sinkers, weights, while the head rope, the top rope, floated and, uh, with attached corks, enabling the net wall to be dragged towards the shore by both ends, trapping fish inside. So you would either do this with a couple boats, you would set it out in the, the sea, and then you would drag it towards the shore, or there was a way of you setting the net, and then people on the shore, the no boats involved, would drag it in. Ashley and I, when we were in Malawi, when we were in Africa, we were beside a freshwater lake, and we actually saw people doing this. They had this big old net, and they were just reeling it in and cinching it up and seeing what they caught as far as the types of fish. And so that's the imagery here where we've got this net, and it, it, it's indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate in catching all these different types of fish. Verse 48, when it was full... Men drew it ashore. That's what you would do. You pull it ashore, and you've got all this sort of stuff that the net catches, right? Maybe not even just fish, right? Other um, things that it might have got caught up in. So they, we get these uh, men that drew, drew it ashore, and they sat down and sorted the good into containers, probably baskets, but threw away the bad. Uh, the idea is rotten or worthless. And then this one Jesus interprets for us. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. Now, remember the end of the age. What does that mean? Um, the, the idea, and you see this through the New Testament, is that we can talk about the age that we're in right now. Uh, we can even talk about it as the present evil age. And yet, when the, when the judgment and the kingdom comes, then that transitions into the coming age. So Jesus is talking about the completion of this age, the turning point when the kingdom comes. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So again, the humans in this parable, they're supernatural, they're angels. They come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this should sound really familiar to the parable of the tares, doesn't it? Because both end the same way. If you remember the parable of the tares, it ends basically the same way, that there's going to be this mixture, there's going to be the good or the righteous or the disciples, that's an equal ways of describing it, the citizens of the kingdom are going to live side by side with 
the sons of the evil one with the wicked, and only at the end will they be ultimately and finally separated. And in the previous parable, in the the parable of the tares, Jesus emphasized uh, the same thing. The wicked are going to be thrown into the fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there he emphasized the righteous are going to shine like uh, the sun in the kingdom of their father. Here, just the judgment is emphasized. And this is judgment. This is the description of God's final judgment. For those who do not repent and entrust themselves to Jesus Christ... This is the end. We already said that sin is, not, is, is a slap in the face. It's a personal offense against an infinitely holy God who deserves our worship and obedience. Everyone is guilty. Everyone deserves to be thrown into eternity, into the fires of God's judgment. We all deserve that. We all deserve weeping and gnashing in teeth. But, as we've already said, there is repentance and faith in Jesus to where he purchased his precious possession out of that reality. And so you can think about what, what would the disciples, why is Jesus telling all this? Why is he kind of repeating the same thing as the parable of the tares? Why is he repeating that um, sort of same basic notion for the disciples? Well, there's a couple things. One, early in Matthew 4, right, when he called his disciples, what did he call his disciples to be? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. What does that mean? It means proclaiming the same message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That is the message of John. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of the disciples, and it is currently the message of his disciples. Well, as that message goes out, even as he's emphasizing the parable of the the soils, the parable of the sower, there are people that are going to respond in some measure to that message. Of course, there's the people that are not going to respond at all, that don't understand or just blow it off. But then there are some who seemingly respond to the gospel message. They respond in some way to that gospel call, and yet they don't actually know Jesus. There's mixture. There's mixture until the end. And we know this to be true even in our own time, right? There's a lot that goes under the name of Christian that's just not, that would not please Jesus. There's a lot of people who go under the name of Christian that are not and will be exposed at the judgment for what they are. Remember Matthew 7, what did Jesus say? There are many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these amazing things in your name? And what is he going to say? Depart from me, I never knew you. And so he's telling his disciples this. Why? Because if you understand that reality and you understand and we look and see in our world where there are people that initially profess, there's, there's some sort of response to the gospel and yet they don't live like the, uh, the gospel is real. They don't live in the way that Jesus would want. Or we see people renounce the faith or we see leaders fall, right? We see that all the time, don't we? Well, the disciples are going to see the very same thing even as they proclaim the gospel. Doesn't that seem to contradict what Jesus just said about the parables of value, the value he puts on his people, the purchase price that he has for his people? It seems to contradict that. Well, that's why Jesus is juxtaposing those two parables with this parable. He's saying, look, the kingdom people, the kingdom citizens are incredibly valuable to me. But 
you're not going to see the full exposure of that value until the end. It's the end where things are going to be sorted out. It's the end where judgment will cleanse out every evil thing from Christ's kingdom and will the display of his, not just his people. Remember we said the kingdom's not just the kingdom citizens. It's the bulk of the kingdom, but it's not all of the kingdom. It's the ruler. It's the, uh, the, the ruled, the citizens. It's the realm. It's the world. It's the, it's the reign of uh, Christ over his people. But you're not going to see all of that until the end. So what is this a call to? For his disciples, it's a call to perseverance, endurance. Yeah, things don't look the way they ought to right now. Even people who are responding or seemingly respond to the, our message. But that doesn't negate the value. The value will be exposed at the end. Remember, we're still in the same age. We're still in the same circumstances as Jesus' disciples. We are Jesus' disciples. Remember that there's mixture during this time. There are many who seemingly respond to the gospel of the kingdom and yet are actually sons of the devil, evil ones. That's Jesus' language. That's what he's saying. Yet Jesus will expose what he purchased in the end. So what do we do? It's a call to patience and persistence in making disciples. Understanding both the mixture during this present time and the value at the end of time. And the call, again, both with the parable of the sower, the parable of the tares, the parable of the dragnet, have you actually surrendered to Jesus through the gospel message? You may know the right words. You may know the right truth. That doesn't mean, you may even have some measure of kind of joy or response. That does not mean you've surrendered to Jesus. You may have raised your hand. You may have walked an aisle. You may have signed a card. That does not necessarily mean you're a disciple of Jesus. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner and follower of Jesus. It's one who lays down arms and says, my life is not my own. It was never my own, but I am laying down arms against the king of kings. I'm surrendering, and I'm entrusting myself to this king, and I'm following. He is the boss of my life. He is the Lord of my life. He's going to lead me in all of my decisions. He's going to be the center of my universe in my life. That is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Have you actually surrendered? Or are you playing games? The angels and the God in heaven know. Parables of the Darnell, the dragnet, the sower indicate that you could think that you've responded to the gospel and are a disciple, but when you're not. And so here's the glorious reality, though. If you've never surrendered, you still can. Because look at the king who values, who treasures his people and calls them to himself. He is the ultimate treasure. He is the ultimate king. He is the one who deserves our worship. He is the one who will bring us into ultimate satisfaction with his presence and fullness of joy in his kingdom forever. Last, we see this. You need to teach the new and old truths of the kingdom to others. Teach the new and old truths of the kingdom to others. Look at verse 51. Have you understood all these things? So again, Jesus is talking to his disciples and that understanding language, that language for understanding, that's key because you remember back in 1310, um, 1310 through 17, the disciples came up to him and said, hey, why are you talking to them in parables? And he's, uh, Jesus says, well, to you it has been given to know the, the, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And then he talks in terms of Isaiah where the crowds hear, but they don't understand 
And the idea of biblical understanding is not just mental knowledge, but it's understanding that leads to action. It's understanding that leads to action. And so the disciples are supposed to understand. They're supposed to be able to understand. So Jesus asks them, have you understood all these things, all these parables I've been telling you? They, say to, they said to him, yes. Again, I, I just, I, I think uh, I chuckle at that every time because it's like, really? Do you, do, you, do you get all of it? Now, certainly, I don't think we should discount it, right? Uh, uh, I think we should take it at face value. Do they understand? Well, they certainly understand more than the crowds. Do they understand every single thing? No, they're, even later in Matthew, it's very clear the disciples don't understand, especially about Jesus' suffering and atonement. But the, that's the goal. That's the goal of the parables is understanding. Yes, they understand in measure, and they're going to understand more fully in the future. Now, based on their affirmation, yes, we understand what you've been teaching us in these parables, Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 52. And he said to them, therefore, or on account of this, so on account of what you just said, on account of what you just said about understanding, if you're, you're claiming to understand, and if that's actually true, then he lays this out. On account of this, every scribe. Now, what's a scribe? A scribe was an expert interpreter of the Hebrew scriptures who also not only understood those scriptures, but then taught those scriptures to others. That was what a scribe was in Jesus' day. So he's focusing us on scribes. On account of this, every scribe, and ESV reads, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, that's actually the language of being made a disciple. That's the language. So every scribe who has been made a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. What's a disciple? It's a learner. It's someone who follows Jesus, and Jesus has been teaching. What's he been teaching about? He's been teaching about the kingdom of the heavens. So what is he saying? He's saying, all right, we've got an expert interpreter of the Hebrew scriptures, of the Old Testament as we know it, and this person also happens to be a disciple who's following me and who just heard what I taught in the parables in Matthew 13. That kind of a person is like... So here we get some parabolic language. This is another parable. This is another parable. Except that Jesus actually kind of gave the uh, basis of interpretation already. Now he's going to actually give the imagery. Is like a master of a house. So someone who owns a house, owns a household, fairly wealthy, who brings out of his treasure, literally who casts out from his treasure what is new, or new things, and old things. So what is, what is this that Jesus is saying? Well, again, the scribe is one who understands the Hebrew Scriptures in an expert way, and he's also understood what Jesus has said. What is it, what's the topic? The kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament talks about the kingdom of heaven. The, uh, what Jesus has been teaching talks about the kingdom of heaven. And if you're a disciple and you are pulling those ideas together, then you're like a wealthy uh, householder who spends his treasure. I think the idea here is not him bringing these treasures out and just kind of looking at it and ooing and aahing over it. I think the idea is he's spending it because that's what a scribe does. He spends his knowledge in teaching. He spends his knowledge in teaching. He's casting out old stuff 
and new stuff. You need both. You need both the Old Testament and you need Jesus' teaching and, by extension, the rest of the New Testament to understand the nature of the kingdom. And what is he telling? He's saying to his disciples, remember, what are disciples supposed to be? They are disciples, but they're supposed to make disciples. They're supposed to be fishers of people. So what does that mean? You need to understand first, and then you need to pass on what you have learned. You need to teach and instruct. And specifically, what Jesus is pointing to here is to instruct and teach about the kingdom, which goes back to where we started in when we we started the sermon, right? Why does Jesus care about us understanding the kingdom so that we can pass that understanding on to others? You know, sometimes, sometimes when we proclaim the gospel to others, we kind of present it this way. And don't get me wrong, this is not, this is not wrong. It's just incomplete. We present it this way. God is holy, and we have sinned. We deserve his justice, and uh, Christ died for sinners, and if you entrust yourself to him, you repent and have faith, and you follow him, you will be saved. End of story. Now, that's all true. That is all true. But what Jesus is highlighting here, and what the Bible highlights, is that the kingdom is the central, the central plot line. And when you go up to someone and you just kind of blurt that stuff out, it's not wrong, but it's kind of missing a context. It's missing an understanding. It's missing a story. And we know people are compelled by story. So what we need to do, and if you notice on that table right outside our entryway there, it's got the little trifold that says the gospel on it. Uh, what we've tried to do is, in, even in the way we present a gospel as the church, we've tried to wrap it up in this kingdom language because it gives a plot line. And it gives people a context. And it's compelling. It's compelling because it's epic. It's compelling because it's real. And so what do we need to do as disciples? We need to understand the nature of the kingdom from the Old Testament and the New Testament and give people a context when we proclaim the gospel. What did we learn from the Old Testament? God had a chosen king through Adam. Adam was supposed to glorify God through, as a king and priest over his creation. Adam fell. He, he essentially staged a coup against God. There was a rebellion, and yet God still had this plan to choose a king over a whole, the, world, the whole world, which he eventually chose one of David's sons to reign over not only Israel, but all the nations of the world. We're waiting for that one who will die for his people on behalf of their sins. The kingdom is coming. Judgment is coming. And what does Jesus say? Well, because, what does Jesus add to this picture? Well, because Israel, his generation of Israel rejects him, we're going to have mixture during this time. It's going to look small and insignificant, but things are going to get cleared up in the end. Judgment's still coming, but there's been a postponement. And the king is going to purchase his people. That's what we've learned. So do you understand the nature of the kingdom of the heavens, and are you proclaiming it to others? You need to understand it so that you give people the full context, the whole story, the real story, the epic story, which is compelling and causes us to worship and draws us to Jesus and keeps us following Jesus. So we leave today with this. The main idea that we stated at the beginning, understand the purchase, exposure, and possession of the kingdom and teach new and old truths of the kingdom to others. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you for proclaiming to us the truths of, your, of the kingdom. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us in the dark, but revealing these secrets of the kingdom to your disciples. And Lord, it's, it's still hard and it's still difficult to interpret these things, and yet we thank you that you've given a sufficient word. Lord, help us to understand what's coming. Help us to be patient. Um, Lord, we know you value your people. You, we know you value your kingdom citizens. We know you value the church and the local church. We know you do. And yet a lot of things that we see happen in the church at large and in our world seems to contradict the price that you paid on the cross. But Lord, give us patience and help us to wait because you will clear everything up in the end. Lord, if there are any, uh, there are many in our, our, our community, in our area that do not know you, help us to proclaim to them the gospel of the kingdom. Help us to give them a context for understanding what you're doing in the world. And I pray that you would please rescue more to be on the right side of history. If there are any here this morning who have not surrendered and bowed the knee, may they do so. May you do that. We cannot. May you, by your spirit, rescue them and gather them into your kingdom your kingdom citizens, Lord, we pray that you would do this. We know you've done it for us. We do not deserve it, but we give you great praise and thanks. We thank you even now as we get the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember the price that was paid for your people. Lord, help us to do that with great sobriety and great joy all at the same time. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to do so this morning. Bless the time now as we come to your table. In Christ's name, amen.